0: This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonization and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the e Podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting Sarah Cottingham's new book, A Meaningful Learning in Action. American psychologist and psychiatrist David Alziubel is well known for his famous quote, The most important single factor influencing learning is what the learner already knows. Ascertain this and teach him accordingly. However, few know about the richness and importance of his assimilation theory of meaningful learning and retention, which holds many more instruction-altering insights. One of the main reasons why this theory is so important is because it focuses on the end goal teachers are after. Teachers don't want students to memorize distinct ideas. Teachers want students to develop vast bodies of knowledge in the subjects they are taught. Ausubel explains that the only way to achieve this is through supporting students to learn meaningfully. Siri's new book explores the key elements of the theory and what it means to learn meaningfully. It then links the theory to highly practical implications teachers can use day-to-day in all aspects of their teaching. This is a book that I've been waiting for for months because I'm a massive fan of Sarah and her work. I am so excited that it's now out. With a special code of ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the Cat website. That includes Bell's Meaningful Learning in Action, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website, or if you're based in Australia, you can use this code on the Woods Lane website to get the same discount. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based education project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests of the e podcast to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes.
1: What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello
0: listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 81 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Audley Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Bill Loudon. Bill is Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Western Australia, where he was the Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Dean of Education. Bill has led many government reviews and inquiries and served on many national review panels. He was a member of the panel that produced the landmark National Inquiry into the Teaching of Literacy. More recently, he has led reviews of sex and gender education for the Australian and New South Wales governments, functional reviews of educational authorities in Western Australia and New South Wales, an investigation of high-performing primary schools for the Western Australian government, and two national reviews of the NAPLAN assessment program. He was a member of the expert panel that produced the Australian government's 2022 review of the quality of initial teacher education, and is a member of the Australian government's teacher education panel. And these last two things are what we're talking about today. In this episode, Bill and I take a deep dive into these two recent reviews, as well as into the context of these current reviews, what they follow on from, key recommendations, comparisons with initial teacher education in other countries, and challenges of generating change at a national level. I found it extremely interesting driving into these really important kind of structural questions when it comes to improving initial teacher education and education more broadly. And this discussion really has wide-reaching implications for education in Australia. And it was particularly a real privilege to be able to speak with someone as experienced as Bill is in this area. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my Edthreads newsletter. Each week, I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up to EdThreads, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's com forward slash subscribe. Oh, and one more quick note. Unfortunately, in this episode of the e podcast, the audio quality for Bill is not as ideal as it usually is with guests. Uh, to remedy this in future, I'm going to be sending a microphone to every guest to make sure that the audio quality is tip top. Uh, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that this time. Luckily, Bill is still very understandable, but the audio just isn't quite as good as I would usually like. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 81 of the of tripler podcast with Bill Loudon. Bill Loudon, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room.
1: Great to be here, I'm really pleased to be having a chance to talk to
0: you. Totally. Bill, I'd like to start here. In 2008, you wrote a paper called 101 Damnations. Uh, It took me a while to realize that was a play on uh, 101 Dalmatians, actually, but uh, sometimes it takes us a little longer than it should. Anyway, that paper lamented the lack of impact of 101 reviews of teacher education up until that point. Yet, in 2021, 13 years later, you became an expert panel member on yet another review of teacher education. Bill, what made you feel it was the right time for another review of teacher education and what made you hopeful that this time
1: it could have an impact? Well, be careful what the titles you give books and articles. That's my first warning. Uh, look, uh, timing wasn't up to me. Um, Alan Tudge, who was the Minister of the Day, rang me and asked me to be involved. And I knew some of the people that he'd asked to be involved in the review. I've done lots of work with Lisa Paul in the past. And was pleased to work with Derek Scott and Malcolm Elliott on the review. So he asked me and I said yes. But, you know, I guess a different question Ollie, is what made me say yes. And my sense was that the TMAG review of 2020, which was what I was really referring to when I was talking about 101 damnations, yet another review, because that left a few things on the table, Um, I wanted to see if we could just get a bit further down the reform road.
0: Bill, you mentioned TMAG there. Could you just briefly outline when TMAG happened, what it was, and what what it aimed to do?
1: Yeah, so in 2014, the uh, Minister of the Day, uh, Chris Pine, established a thing called the Teacher Education Ministerial Advisory Group, which people have forgotten what it, what it was, but it's now called TMAG. And you'll hear people talk about TMAG, before TMAG, and after TMAG.
0: And so that was like another review of teacher education you mentioned?
1: Yep. Uh, yet another, actually, is the point. Cool. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that's
0: probably a good place to pick up. So what do you think TMAG achieved that was, that was good and noteworthy? And what were the couple of things that you felt were left on the table?
1: The thing that people have most liked about TMAG was the uh, teaching performance assessments, which have at least now every student who finishes and wants to register has to have done one of these teaching performance assessments, which asks them to dig into their kind of actuality of teaching, usually on their last prac, and show what they know about kids, uh, what they know about kids learning, what they think kids should learn next, all that kind of stuff. So that's been been regarded across the industry as a really useful intervention. A lot of people have told me that they have, it's caused them to go back into the earlier years of their program and think, what should we be doing earlier to make sure that our students can do really good TPAs? So that's been good. Um, less popular but equally useful is the introduction of the uh, literacy and numeracy assessments, LAD type. Yeah. They've been pretty unpopular. Um, unpopular with students because they've got to pay a fee, unpopular with teacher educators because they, uh, well, I don't know, you'd have to ask them. Uh, but I'm, I'm really keen to ensure that there's some sort of a intellectual flaw uh, in a, underneath uh, teacher education because there are so many ways of getting into university and to teacher ed now I just want to be reassured that people uh, who want to teach others at least uh, you know have a modicum of skilled in literacy and themselves so those things have been good the third thing that which was good was there's a thing called the Australian Teacher Workforce uh, Data Project which ATWD which you might not know about but it's been very useful in trying to link up data that comes from teacher ed you know completions for example enrollments with data uh, from the te- teacher regulatory authorities about who they agree can become a teacher and and what happens in their careers from there so those two bits of data which were unrelated before are now linked together and augmented with uh, some surveys um, of teachers opinions about a variety of things such as are they teaching out of field what's the kind of what kind of contract are they on you know how many hours are they doing so those things have been linked together in the ATWD and uh, there's still a lot more to come out of that. Uh, but that's been very useful. So there's some good things that came out of TMAG. What's what's left on the table? Well, I, I think there are some big gaps in what providers have to do to get their courses accredited. So we'll dig into that in detail, I'm, I'm sure, but it, for me there's, there's still issues in accreditation and the uh, quiet review had a lot
0: to say about accreditation. Yeah, got it. So at the end of your 101 Damn Nations report, you had a bit of a call to arms. So you ended it with the following. In Australia, we have had 101 damn nations of teacher education in the past 20 years. The most appropriate response to this crisis in public confidence, I believe, is strong quasi-experimental designs that take advantage of the naturally occurring variation across programs and attempt to account for the impact of student intake, teacher education program, and school context variables in new graduate performance and student achievement. And I'll just pause there and say, highlight that they were the kind of three inputs that you really highlighted in that report we need to look at, which were the characteristics of people coming in, the training that they undertake, and the School context that they then go into, and then you said, then you write, without such a response, we in Australia can look forward to a further list of reports and inquiries into teacher education. Adding then that those reports and inquiries would be unlikely to be successful. So between Tmag and this new inquiry, have we seen this kind of experiments and this kind of experimental evidence that you thought was necessary for an inquiry to be successful?
1: Well, no. The answer is no. The main part of the no is that what I was drawing attention to is there are three big sources of variance in what the outcomes are, that it depends who you select, you know, what are their personal characteristics? What are their, what's their intellectual background and you can do better or worse on that, you know? So none of the studies that I've looked at have paid much attention to who you recruit and everywhere else in every other industry I can think of people pay a lot of attention to who you recruit. Secondly, there are endless variations sort of in the treatment part of it, in what's inside programs. You know, they can be one year, they can be two years, they can be four years, they can be online, they can be in person. So that varies a lot. And of course, it remains to be to be seen, to be guessed still, whether it matters what you do in the degree compared with whether people have a good landing. You know, when people land in a terrific school, where they get an appropriate workload where they get support from other experienced people to help them push along, I mean, whether they have a, a mentor who knows what they're doing. It may be that it hardly matters who you recruit or it hardly matters what the program's like if you just get a good landing. Or it may be it doesn't matter what kind of landing you get or what kind of program you have if you start with a smart, charismatic person who loves kids. So we still don't know what, the, what those three parts contribute.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I am interested because it seemed like in 101 Damnations, you were kind of suggesting that without experiments, basically disaggregating some of these factors that lead to quality teachers, I guess we could say, it would be hard to have a successful review yet. I actually feel that the recent review, at least the report of the review, was really fantastic and sketches some really fantastic pathways for the improvement of teacher education in Australia. So I'm curious, do you still feel, Bill, that we really need these, this kind of concrete evidence on these three factors as inputs, or have you have you changed your position on that a little bit?
1: Well, I think it would be better if we knew. Uh, but I, I kind of wrote that out of irritation, Ollie. It's not as if I had myself never written anything on this topic. Like, I I, and I did a major research project for the Australian government some years before with mary roll and a few other people where we basically looked at how well prepared teachers thought they were for teaching yet every time there's some kind of review beginners name the same five or six things um as feeling unprepared for so it remains you know so it remains frustrating surely we can do a bit better than that yeah
0: okay no that makes sense well maybe that's a good a good segue bill could you kind of paint a bit of a picture of of the kind of state of play at present in terms of teacher education in australia so what do we know about kind of how many providers there are how many courses there are and the do we have any sense of the quality i mean people are no no doubt sure aware of the kind of teacher shortage we have because many, many schools are experiencing it. But what do we know? What is the current state of play that acts as the, the backdrop to this recent review?
1: Okay, so uh, there's about 40 providers, almost all of which are universities, and uh, one or two of them are not universities, but they are accredited hiring providers. So about 40 providers, and they all offer, mostly offer more than one program. You know, early childhood, secondary, uh, MTECH, four-year, undergraduate, you know, so there's something like 300 or 320 separate programs um, in the country, and these are all um, in higher ed, uh, and that's not universally the case in other countries, Um, and and we might talk about the UK, which does it quite differently. So uh, it's all in the university sector. Um, and so it's all, and, and the regulation of it is done by the, the TRAs, by the teacher registration authorities, the teacher regulatory authorities. Uh, and they vary a great deal in size and scope. You know, so I think there's probably 13 providers in New South Wales who have you know, dozens between them, dozens and dozens of programmers. So if you're, if you're working at NESA, um, it's probably steady business accrediting programs. Mm. What's 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 NESA? Oh, the, uh, the New South Wales Educational Standards Authority, which is the regulator. Um, so, uh, and, you know, working there, uh, there'll be accreditation to be done every year. You um, a five-year cycle, still something comes up every year. you're in Tasmania, there's one provider to be accredited once every five years. So you can imagine that without criticising Tasmania, and I don't there's quite a difference in how big a scope the work is. Um, but all of the accreditation um, focuses on um, structural structural characteristics. You know, programs have to be a certain length, have to have a certain amount of prep. Uh, there's no in, in you know, it's all based on the paperwork. So there's no inquiry into uh, no looking at what people are doing in the program. It's all at the front end of accreditation. So, the set of accreditation standards that people are all judged by, but they're judged by eight different organisations.
0: Okay. And I guess that's the same as kind of judging a school by saying, you know, how many kids have you got? Are they, are they, how many days a year do they come to school? How many subjects do you teach? How long do you spend on those subjects? And then kind of ticking them off based upon that.
1: Yeah. So, these are all non trivial things, but they don't quite go to the heart of it, do they? No. I mean, you do want to know that there's enough bathrooms for the kids and, you know, and, and enough playing space and that the teachers are qualified. These are all important things, but uh, when you finish ticking those off, you still wonder uh, about the quality of teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. What's the hope of – I mean,
0: you, you know, you you were tapped on the shoulder by Alan Tudge, you said, and, he, and you said, yes, I'm happy to uh, play a part in this review. What was your hope when you kind of said yes in terms of the outcome at the end of this review period or five or ten years down the track? How would you like to see Aussie teacher education look a bit different?
1: I think what we've not got right yet is the balance between knowing how and knowing that. So presently, I think a fair bit of the teacher education industry focuses on checking that students know that this is is the case and that is the case. So maybe it's just a a, a bit... A bit unfair, but you know, imagine that you are in a in a unit on behaviour management, and you have to write an essay comparing three strategies for behaviour management, and then you get graded, and so you've written an essay on a topic, but do you know anything more about how to manage difficult behaviour? Well, that's a practical skill. So I just think there's too much knowing about, and not enough knowing how to. the TPA was a good start in trying to get some assessment of what people can do, not what they can know about. But even so, there's a, lot, a fair bit of essay writing in the TPA.
0: Could you let us know a little bit, so the TPA, the Teacher Performance Assessment, that was kind of initi- an initiative of the, of the TMAG review. You did mention that earlier. What, what does that look like in most institutions? What do teacher grads actually have to do to kind of pass
1: the Teacher Performance Assessment? And they vary a little bit, but At the heart of them um, is an obligation for the students to complete a kind of a structured portfolio and the portfolio has to and the institutions manage them slightly differently but the portfolio has to have something about how people plan how they teach how they assess students and what they reflect on their experience of doing all of those things. So typically they have a few tasks that have to be done and they and they vary. So it might be collect a video of such and such minutes long of, um, and then explain what you were trying to do and how well you thought you'd do that or mark a series of uh, responses to an assessment task and explain what kids have learned and what they still have to learn. So they're trying to dig into the practic- their day-to-day practicalities of teaching rather than write about, comparing and contrast the three theories of reading teaching, you know, which is kind of the not so helpful task.
0: Yeah, got it. Cool. So, I mean, that definitely a step in the right direction towards that more knowing how rather than just the, knowing that uh, distinction that you, you painted earlier. One of the recommendations from the Next Steps report, which is the, the one that you've just contributed to, was actually having a kind of governing body to oversee the teacher performance assessments and kind of, bit of moderate them a little bit and ensure there's a bit higher quality and so on. What would you like TPAs to look like in an ideal
1: world? Well, I'd, I'd like them to have, them have them. as much what you might call actuality as possible. The thing itself, not the writing about the thing. And that's hard to do because, uh, you know, some families are not happy with their kids being collected on camera and that's been stored on a server somewhere. So there's lots of workarounds, but it's the actuality. It's the thing itself that I'm interested in. What can this person do with this group of young people? What confidence can I get when I look at the material they've provided that they can, um, can structure a task, They can break it up into suitably small bits, that they give enough practice, that they... Don't ask kids to do things they haven't shown them how to do, and on and on, you know, those things that I think really matter. Not writing about them, but showing them.
0: Yeah, I love it. I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, let's pretend for a moment that we've got infinite resources. And we can kind of, you know, pay people to assess it however we want. What would it look like? Would we just, would we actually just bring in a classroom of students and have pre-service teachers one by one kind of prepare a lesson and teach it to a class and we observe them and provide feedback? Would it look like that or, or something
1: different? I think what we've got is fine as long as people don't slide away from the amount of actuality in it and fall into too much writing long explanations about small bits of reality. That's the thing. It's, uh, you know, getting more permission to have more kids to have longer bits of video, having more extended bits of teaching, having two or three phases of teaching. These are the things i you know, if I were having, I mean, I've looked at all the TPAs, uh, so I, you know, I've seen every one of them more than once. And the ones I like best are the ones that have more actuality, more of the thing itself, less of the, about the thing. Yeah.
0: No, that makes sense. I mean, I think I also see scope. There's a lot of really interesting research being done around the world at the, at the moment on supporting teachers to have more actuality, uh, to, to use your, your words, in their training. One example, I know Sam Sims and colleagues in the UK have recently done an amount of training of teachers using simulations. So it's actually like the teacher goes into a virtual, virtual environment and there's actors behind avatars, and they practice behaviour management techniques, and they found that this was a really, really effective instructional uh, method for the pre-service teacher. So I, I think maybe there, there could even be some kind of scope moving forwards for that level of actuality or realism in, in in training as well.
1: It could be, but it's the infinite resources problem. You know, I can I can go back, um, not directly, but in in the records, 50 years where people were building wonderful teacher education programs with what were they what they called micro-teaching, which was you get a group of kids in and you get the beginner to teach them something and then you watch it and then you talk to them about what they did. So that was done um, very effectively 50 years ago. And why is it not being done? It's really expensive. And remember, the teacher is, is this is a mass activity. We, can, we, we need tens of thousands of new teachers every year. And we need them to teach in eight discipline areas across thirteen years of schooling. So, if you just stick to thinking about teaching simultaneous equations in three unknowns, it would just be great if that's the only thing you had to do. You could have endless avatars, and you know, you could explore different ways of doing a little bit of teaching. It's an important bit of teaching, maybe I don't know, it used to be. But yeah, so many, you know. But what about what you do in physics? What you know, and what about reading? So maybe, you, could, you know, we could do better in those really high-frequency areas like teaching of reading and, um, you know, automaticity in number um, learning for small children. But, you know, it's going to be a long way from, from Year 11 chemistry. That's a resource question.
0: Interesting. We might come back to it more. So this report, this new report, is it's the next steps report, and it was it was pretty massive. It and it dealt with kind of three main areas. One was the attraction and selection of co- uh, quality and diverse candidates to teaching. I guess would be one way to put it. The second one is looking at really improving ITE programs, and that includes kind of measuring whether they've improved uh, and also allocating funding based upon whether or not those improvements have, have taken place. And the third is supporting candidates in the early years of teaching. And so that mirrors what you were saying about, you know, maybe the most important thing is whether they land in a good school when they come out, and which also relates to kind of teacher workforce issues and things like that we've t- that we've touched upon already. All in all, there were 17 recommendations and seven findings. It was It's a very, very comprehensive report and it took me a long time to, to really get my head around it and kind of order all the information and things like that. But, Bill, if, if you were at dinner with a friend and they said, hey, Bill, you've he just released this Next Steps report thing. You know, what was it all about and, and what did you find? How would you kind of summarise it?
1: I think, Ollie, I'd come back to that issue that I was naming earlier about trying to get people to pay more attention to what people can do, not what they can talk about. And that is where the accreditation and recommendations is, uh, land. So there's a variety of things we've talked about. But the thing that I'm most passionate about is the doing Okay, great. And so
0: that kind of sits in that middle part, which is all about the actual teacher education programs.
1: But the, the parts are all linked, though, because, I mean, there's a big difference in the proportion of candidates who finish the program from one institution to another. I mean, there's some where it's only 35% of candidates who start, finish, and others it's 80 80%. But you wouldn't want to just attribute that to being a crook program. It's often to do with who enrolls and how they, how they uh, do the course. So if you're a part-timer in an online program and you're raising a family or working at the same time, <clears throat> there are lots of reasons why you might not finish that have got something to do with you, not something to do with the program. So I, I think in the follow-up review that I've been involved in, which you'll probably come to, the one that's just about to report, Um, We've been thinking what we can do about supporting people in things like practicum experience. So in the hope of increasing their rate of completions is not just about naming and shaming the teacher education providers. It's providing support for people who are on a more arduous journey. I mean, it's okay if you're young, you're a school leaver, you haven't formed a family, you're doing your studies full time, you did well at school, got a part-time job, Um, but you can take a few weeks off to do prac. I mean, that, you know, the obstacles there to completion are low, whereas if you're in your middle years, you're raising a family, you've got a part-time job, you're doing it online at night, you know, and then you've got to give up your job, which actually is essential to you, to pay your rent, pay your mortgage in order to do prac. So so I think there are some things we can do that support candidates rather than just focus on whether uh, programs are uh, you know, well or badly behaved in terms of completions. What can we do? What can Australia do in a time of, uh, of sharp concern about teacher supply to increase the probability that candidates will be able to complete their program?
0: No, it's a good question. I mean, on that, one change that came through since I did my teacher training that was interesting, I went through my teacher training with quite a few kind of career changes, adults with with kids and and they'd taken essentially time off work to do their course because that was the only way way to do it and they were living on one income and so on and so forth and at that time you could actually do a diploma of teaching in one year and then you could choose to go on and finish your master's by doing a further year of study or you could just jump out and i think you had five years to finish that master's in you could kind of start working and then do it part-time or whatever but it's one change that's happened since I graduated at least, is that's no longer an option. You've got to do the full master's now. Do you know if you've seen any changes in demographics of people applying to teaching, the the number of people finishing teaching, the total number of graduates coming through courses since that change and anything that's attributable to it?
1: Well, the number of people choosing to begin teacher education has dropped but I don't know whether it's caused by that. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether teaching has become less attractive for other reasons it's obviously become less attractive. Mm.
0: But I, I know I know some as part of the review some organizations were kind of contracted to do a bunch of surveying especially with kind of mid-career people taking changes. Nothing came through in those surveys that indicated an impact of that that change of policy.
1: And uh, the main thing is that whether it's uh, 9 months or 2 years, say for a PhD or a masters, people still have to be able to support themselves through that so it's not so much the length of the program it's a level of support so in every state and territory there's some kind of experiments going on through the capacity to give people um, conditional registration or in some places it's called limited authority to teach so that people can uh, do their program and work at the same time and as the teacher supply crunch hits, I expect there to be a lot more experimentation in this space, you know, where people use their conditional registration to begin practical teaching after relatively small amounts of pre-service training, but with obligations to continue to do all the other things as they go along. And it depends what they're teaching a bit, how much I care about that. So if the candidate, you know, is a career changer, you know the, the fa- you know, the famous uh, dissatisfied nuclear physicist who now wants to work with people, that kind of person, who's got a really good background in mathematics and they're going to teach upper school kids in demanding mathematics subjects. Or maybe they're, you know, they're going to teach one subject to a narrow age range. Maybe they don't need that much prior preparation. But if the person wants to teach small children how to read and do maths and do the other six learning areas. It won't be the content they don't know. It's the pedagogical content, how to teach that they need. So that's harder to do in, you know, in a short period. So a lot of the success of some of those uh, compressed programs, like uh, Teach for Australia, uh, comes from focusing on very able candidates selection who are like kids, non-academic selection, who've got, who are very able and are going to teach in secondary schools and have got the content already. So it's easier for that, you know, it's easier to do that. But I can tell you, every state and territory is trying something at the moment uh, to get uh, the kind of uh, mid career, career changer group
0: up. Interesting challenges. So there are a couple of thorny issues and kind of the issues that you talked about that the most interesting to you are really looking at the quality of those teacher education programs and things like that ensuring that there's more more doing rather than talking about doing. But I did want to I thought it would be worth kind of giving a bit of an overview of some of the other findings at least briefly. So uh, within within the paper I saw some kind of what what I would call some kind of low complexity and potentially e- quote-unquote, easy wins that were really fantastic ideas. So I'll just list a few of these. These are things like a national recruitment campaign, seems like a bit of a no-brainer, making land tight, which is the literacy and numeracy tests for initial teacher education, the, essentially the test that teachers must do to show they can read and write before they can become teachers, bringing that to the first year of their tr- teacher training. Is it currently in the f- at the end? It has been a, a,
1: a requirement of graduation.
0: Yeah, I mean, that just seems like the most insane thing because it's like a teacher in training goes through like three years of training or something and then there's this reading and writing test they've got to do that could stop them from teaching essentially and turns it into a incredibly high stakes and stressful thing where it could just be kind of let's do a bridging course thing at the start. So that seems to be...
1: Yeah, and that's been associated with sharp drop completions. If you leave it, if you have a clientele who didn't do particularly well at school for a variety of reasons you know could be inattention because we an interested in school then but you know if you have a group of of less academically well qualified candidates and then you just leave it till the sixth or seventh semester what we've found empirically what we found is that you get a lot of dropouts at that point so they've they've still got their hex debt we haven't got a teacher so you know i'm for doing it straight away and if you don't pass it that's fine um, there's plenty of preparation programs you can do. But when you've done the preparation program, you'll be in a better position to benefit from the rest of your course. So got to be at the
0: front. 100%. And you won't be trying to finish your course and do the preparation program for the test at the same time. Yeah, so that, that's, to me, is a real easy win. I mean, things like short course to try out teaching, just doing an audit and a, ideally a reduction of red tape that teachers face, incentives to join the profession if the money's there. Public, this was an interesting one, publicly reporting on the proportion of academic staff with recent teaching experience. Do you want to talk to that one a little bit?
1: Oh, well, it seems like a good idea, but that one has just landed. It's just gone out into the air. Someone's okay. no picked that one up.
0: <laughs> no. Well, I think it's relevant in many ways because you know you don't want someone who's so kind of detached from the classroom that they can't remember what it's like at all. But also, I, I guess the challenge there is someone could be first, second, third year out of the classroom teaching teachers and doing a great job, but just because they've been out for another two years after that doesn't mean they're doing a less good job of, um, of being a teacher educator, but it's, it's an interesting kind of
1: metric nonetheless. Only underneath that was this observation that because teacher education is not very well funded, um, what has happened in the last few decades is that increasingly supervision of students on prac has been done by short-term contract staff um, who are only loosely affiliated with the institution, sometimes working for more than one. And so the kind of the integration of the theory of practice is at risk if you casualise all of the ob- observations. So people, you know, the people with the, with the better jobs, the people with the PhDs and the and tenure are teaching academic subjects to, t- to students, and the people who are supervising prac are, have a, you know, a, a gl- only a glancing and um, involvement in the programme. And, that, and it's the worst. I'm sure people will do their best to make sure that's not so. But it's a fact that it's largely casualised the supervision of prac. I think that's not that's a good, good thing.
0: thing. Not a good thing. A big challenge as well because obviously you want that continuity of messaging and content flowing through from the lectures to the prac experience. I'm actually working on a bit of a um, project on that at the moment, but um, with with the university, we're hoping, hoping to be able to announce something soon, but nah, things are in the works. Uh, but it is a, it's a, a really important and exciting area. Picking up on another thread from the report, Bill, that relates to something you spoke about earlier. So, earlier you spoke about the ATWD, which stands for the Australian Teacher Workforce Data Project. And you highlighted, you, you kind of foreshadowed that something you could talk about a little bit more. And that does relate as well to some of the recommendations from the Next Steps report, where you talk about having kind of teacher workforce supply and demand model. So, how do those two things fit together? What insights do we have into kind of teacher workforce at the moment, and how could we improve this? What it would would it be good to have more of?
1: Well, until um, as I said, this is something that TMAG brought us the, uh, the project, and that's in about its sixth or seventh year. Uh, so prior to that, we only had state based estimates of supply and demand, and there was no link between the uh, regulatory authorities that determine who gets, you know, who can be a teacher, and the universities that are responsible for preparing them. So there was no relationship at all and there's no kind of pull through from, you know, candidates who've done this program with this level of success and had this early appointment, became fully certified teachers by when. All we knew was that lots of people who start teacher ed don't finish and we had uh, very high estimates of attrition in the first few years. Now, because we've got this vast data matching project going on. where so We're matching the individual student who enters with a teacher who becomes registered. We now know that the first five year attrition is much less than people have been saying. And that once people achieve registration, quite a high proportion of them are still teaching. I, I can't give you the number, but it's much lower than some of the dreadful estimates that we've had. And it looks like, the estimates, the very high estimates of attrition um, among uh, early registered teachers comes from people moving from one system to another, rather than, you know, one employer to another, because none of the data were pulled together. So we've got a much clearer sense now, and there's a bit more work still to be done on this. Uh, we've mostly been focusing on the, on the supply side, you know, who chooses to join. But of course, there are lots of pre- pressures on the demand side. There are some kinds of teachers, some subjects that it's much harder to recruit for. So what we're trying to build is a, a machine that looks at both supply and demand. Um, I'd like to be able to say, instead of just saying the uh, attrition from this program of teacher ed was high, I'd like to be able to say, notwithstanding what the attrition was, people who graduate from this program, 80% of them are still teaching four years later. Because, you know, it's that kind of long-term yield from enrolment to being a three-year, four-year-out teacher. It's that yield that's most important, not just the um, who stayed from first year to second year kind of stuff, which is all we had before. So much more sophisticated, uh, deeper sense of, of the whole life course of a teacher from choosing to enrol to getting full certification and having a full-time job.
0: Mm, that'd be great. And if we manage to do more quality kind of auditing of what's actually happening in those courses, then that can be inputs into that kind of a model as well. And you can say, you know, graduates have graduated from this year to this year. We're actually seeing longer retention. Let's put, look back at our audits and we can say, oh, that's when they ran the the teacher performance assessments and did ran micro teaching, but then it got too expensive and they cut it out. And so we can actually kind of see the effect of that.
1: Well, maybe that, but more likely it'll tell us whether if people attend a, a uh, regional campus, is it really true that they are more likely to stay teaching? People are saying that this is the case, you know. So, if you go to Charles Sturt and you're in the back lots of New South Wales, if you finish the program, you'll probably teach locally, is the argument. But I'm waiting for the empirical um, results on that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I guess it depends upon why people, I mean, if someone if a young person moves to the city, has a city job for a few years and then decides to move home, start a family and kind of get into teaching because they want a bit of stability, then it would make a lot of sense that they'd kind of stick with the career, I guess. But um, yeah, it would be good to have the data to
1: back that up. Oh, there's evidence in medicine that if, if uh, when beginning doctors do some of their training in regional places, the odds of them working later in regional hospitals is much higher.
0: Hence the kind of perks for young doctors to go and start in regional areas, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So, we've talked about like a teacher shortage so far. Do we actually have concrete numbers about how many teachers short? And this might not be something on top of your head, Bill, because it's a big question. How many teachers short are we in Australia? And what's the pipeline looking like? Is this going to get just worse and worse? Are we kind of on the, on the mend? Like how big's the gap? I'm, I'm curious to know.
1: Well, it's not on the mend, and it's unclear whether this is to do with the lengthening of the of the graduate pathway, or the increasing or the decreasing attractiveness of it as a profession. It's unclear. You know, you might speculate, Ollie, that one of the consequences of COVID is most uh, white collar workers now know they can work at home half the time. Teachers don't work at home; they they're there when the bell goes. So you know,
0: I don't know. There's
1: no study in this, but you know, I think that's why you know, teaching is a bit less attractive in a post-COVID world than it was, just because you're much more tied down. And that's always been one of the things that people get sick of in teaching, the way that you've got no control. You know, you've got no control of your time. If you're on duty, you're on duty, and that's that. And 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 of course, so many more professions that require degrees now exist than used to exist. You know, when my mum became a teacher, you could be, a, you know, you could be a teacher or a nurse if you're a woman, or, or you can work in an office. And that was it. <laughs> and now, that you know, there's a, there's 100 professions that you can train for at a university. So there's a long-term issue there. But uh, on the question of is there a teacher supply crisis, I think the answer is it's not a universal crisis. There's a crisis in mathematics teachers, particularly maths teachers who've got a good maths degree because there are so many other things you can do with a good maths degree. And uh, there's a crisis in design and technology teachers because it's very expensive for universities to train people to work in workshops, Small, you know, small numbers, lots of equipment, and so lots of universities don't do that anymore. So generally in uh, for primary teachers, not so much. The crisis is more like can you get people to go to hard to teach in, you know, hard to serve schools. Uh, there's no crisis of employment where I live just like around where I live in a leafy suburb in Perth. There's plenty of primary teachers available to teach in the schools near me, but not so much in the outer suburbs. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's not an even even matter.
0: Yep. no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary will share why Bill thinks that now is an opportune time for a review of teacher education, Reflections on the impact of prior teacher education reviews, a summary of key reforms that came out of the Teacher Education and Ministerial Advisory Group, TMAG, in 2014, an overview of the current state of play in Australian education, Summaries of the recent Next Steps report, as well as the Teacher Education Expert panel review that Bill and I have spoken about in this episode. And in short, this month's summary aims to bring you up to speed and provide you with a quick reference guide to ensure that you're on top of recent developments in this important space. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favorite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. So let's move on to I mentioned kind of some thornier challenges that are brought up in this in this report. Let's move on to them now. So recommendation seven was strengthen initial teacher education programs to deliver confident, effective, and classroom ready graduates. And a quote from the paper here is Amend the accreditation of initial teacher education programs in Australia standards and procedures in a manner similar to the United Kingdom standards to ensure ITE graduates are taught sufficient evidence-based practices, for example, evidence-based reading instruction in the early years. And the other one that we'll, we'll, we'll spend a large portion of the remainder of this discussion on is recommendation 14, which is about establishing a centre for excellence to teach research and evaluate best teaching, which includes developing a quality measure for initial teacher education, which would then in turn be used to kind of allocate funding to initial teacher education providers. So they're the kind of two big ticket items, the kind of thorny issues that that I see in the report, both really high leverage, you know, improving teaching and finding out if we're improving teaching, to put it simply, uh, but also very, very challenging. As a segue into that, you, you, and you foreshadowed this earlier, a new a new panel has formed for another review, a review from a review out of the back of the review, and that is the teacher education expert panel. Do you want to just tell us a bit about this panel and the kind of remit of this panel, and why is there another panel coming out of the panel?
1: Um, not all of the recommendations of uh, Lisa Paul's review have been accepted but some of them have
0: who accepts recommendations
1: there's a body called the education ministers meeting which is state and territory and commonwealth education ministers and they are responsible for signing off things like uh, accreditation guidelines because the accreditation is done in each state and territory but there's still a national system for it. So the authority lies in the Acts of Parliament that regulate the teacher registration authorities, but there's a national system around that, uh, which they have to fit into. That's the education ministers. Uh, So uh, they have accepted some but not all of the things that we recommended in the earlier review. And so the current expert panel is about taking the bits that they want to take forward and making them entirely practical.
0: Right. So, oh, so these are parts that have been accepted.
1: Yeah, yeah, directions that have been agreed. Okay. And so now, so in a fortnight, we'll be sending half a dozen or ten recommendations to the next education ministers' meeting and seeking, you know, offering them the opportunity to agree to some entirely detailed and practical proposals, um, such as um, alterations to the accreditation standards to uh, require evidence-based approaches. That's, uh, that's still coming. So there was a, a, wide, a big review that did a lot of consultation, spoke to hundreds and hundreds of people, and then there's been a, a sharper expert panel to say, well, if that's what's agreed, exactly how would you do that? So we've got a series of exactly how you do that responses. Okay.
0: Great. Yeah, I really enjoyed, and this is kind of the impetus for this discussion, actually, because I heard about this this the secondary discussion paper that was talking about getting really into the meat of kind of like what what should be the content. Of teacher training, and that's the kind of you know spe- level of specificity that I get really excited about. You know, what do graduates need to know? And I read this paper, I mean, your discussion paper, and I was really, basically, really excited about the the evidence that you'd, you'd laying, you and the team had laying out. And I thought, wow, I'd love to love to speak to Bill about this in a little bit more detail. So let's move into that now, and we'll kind of discuss that first piece, which is all about. I think the simplest way to put it is a curriculum for teacher education. So establishing a shared curriculum for teacher education that in the UK they call an entitlement, that all people going through teacher education in Australia are entitled to. Can you talk a little bit about the process that was gone through to develop this curriculum for teacher education and where is it standing now?
1: Uh, Could I just start a bit earlier than that and I'll I'll come to that. Please do. If your listeners are teachers, they'll know about the. Australian professional standards for teachers or the graduate standards, which is a list of, you know, 35 things or something that people are supposed to know. When you look at that, though, those standards are entirely agnostic about what quality teaching looks like. So they're more of the kind you should know your students and you should know the content. You know, that's the kind of level of specificity, but there's nothing about how you might you know, are there better and worse ways of dealing with well-understood bodies of knowledge? And so they're completely agnostic on that. So this is the space that this, this material is pitched into. So what we've done is we've asked the Aero to um, investigate for us to find out what are the things for which there is a strong evidence base that could become compulsory core content. ERA being the Australian education... Research. Sorry, educational. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I've been in acronyms so long, I don't know. That's
0: okay. And for listeners, a relatively newly established body to kind of oversee educational research and evidence
1: in Australia, I guess, one way to put it. Yeah, so they've adopted a fairly restrictive uh, definition of what's evidence-based in terms of research methodology and frequency of the same results being turned up in different contexts, those two things really. Mostly quantitative, uh, high-quality quantitative research, and research that applies not just in phys ed teaching or not just with small children. <clears throat> so we've asked them to say what what is it that we that we feel we know securely that everyone should know, and so that's uh, that was proposed in the discussion paper um, as a, a set of core content. Core content is not all the content, of course, and universities would be able to organise that how to shape the core content as long as they do it. But it's the core content that we are interested in progressing. And so we put out, I I could talk a bit about what's in that if you like, but we put that out in the discussion paper. We've had some responses. Uh, It's been uh, adjusted a bit because uh, you get a lot of good advice. You get a lot of advice generally, and some of it's good advice. And so um, it's reshaped slightly differently now from the discussion paper, but we'll be putting that to the ministers shortly. So what we're talking about here is evidence-based approaches which bring together the insights of cognitive science about how, how people's brains work and how they learn with uh, long-term insights from experience and expert teachers about what works better. So there's a very large literature in that kind of what works better place. And so we're uh, encouraging people, if the ministers agree, to be include in the new accreditation guidelines. Things like, what are the differences between novices and experts? How does the brain retain information, you know, long-term and short-term memory? So there's some stuff there which frames what we want to do. And then there are effective teaching practices. And I think these are things you're interested in, you know. Planning and sequencing, explicit modelling and scaffolding, forms of assessment and feedback, tiers of support, depending on students' progress, or in the... zone of classroom management we're interested in what people are able to show to learn and be able to do about the installation of rules and routines proactive things you can do to defuse things as they emerge strategies for managing behavior whole school approaches to managing behavior right so i I imagine that the things that i've just kind of been running through are things that my mum probably knew about she's uh Primary school teachers is not with us now. But she didn't have the cognitive science to support them. So what we tried to do is bring together that kind of knowledge that uh, expert teachers w- will tell you that these things really matter and cognitive science will tell you why. And we think uh, that everyone who wants to be a teacher should know these things. They should know some other things as well. But the things I've been talking about are things that really matter when you've got an, a known body of knowledge and you want people to master it.
0: That's great, and I mean, it's it's important not to s- skip over this bill. Just what a great job Aero has done here. I mean, when you know, as a, as a teacher, when we hear about a, a review of teacher education that's going to you know specify what teachers should know and things like that, uh, I mean, I must say, I approached it quite wary, <laughs> and I kind of opened the document and started reading, and this was th- it was just nodding my head along. And the more and more I read, the more and more excited I was about the potential of this truly being an entitlement for all pre-service teachers in Australia. And I think it would be, I mean, if we manage to to get this through and manage to get it kind of really embedded into teacher education programs, I think it will have an enormous effect on the the effectiveness of of teachers across the country. So uh, well done to you guys for for working with Aero and refining this and well well done to Aero as well for putting together such a good summary.
1: But people will still be wary because There are so many different contexts, so many different subjects, so many different age groups, so many different reasons for teaching, so many different goals of schooling that inevitably people look at a list like that and say, but there's more than that, to which our response is, there's more than that. I agree. But these are the bits that work when there's a body of knowledge to be mastered. They work in most contexts. And so you won't see much in there about discovery learning because we think discovery learning is really good for people who've mastered bodies of knowledge. First do this.
0: Mm-hmm, 100%. Yeah, and I mean, I personally have a big passion for self-reg- self-regulated learning uh, and that's what I'm doing my PhD and I, I noticed that's not there, but, you know, it's okay that it's not there because there's, there is still space to put it in the course, but, you know, this stuff is absolutely crucial to be in every ITE program across the nation.
1: And there, we will, of course, propose that as things become clearer, they be added. So as things change, things grow and develop and they would have to be reviews. But these are things which I think are um, recognisable to most people who've tried to get a group of kids through
0: a, you know, a body of knowledge. Totally. And we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes so people can, can look at it in more detail. I think we've spent enough time on the actual content of that curriculum and you know, suffice to say, it's, it's fantastic. I think where the issue becomes even more thorny is when we talk about actually, as I alluded to earlier, trying to embed it in teacher education programs. So I was lucky enough to be speaking to a couple of education reformers from the UK late last week and I was talking to them, I mentioned that I was kind of looking at this issue at the moment and we were talking about what it actually took in the UK and their structures around making sure that initial teacher education providers actually follow the specified curriculum, which th- they essentially went through a very similar process in the UK of specifying what it is teachers should know and making sure that's spread right across the nation. So, here's, here's kind of what was said. The person I was speaking to said, you have to go through a strict process of quality assurance and you need to submit various proposals, the scope and sequence of your teacher training program, the resources, including the readings that will go in front of participants and so on and so forth. So, is the plan that there will be a kind of similar process in australia how are we hoping to get these i'm trying to remember what you said before something some 40 providers and three to 320 programs or so are they all going to be submitting scopes and sequences to some regulatory body how, how are you going to make this really happen in practice
1: well they all submit something to their local regulator but uh, they submit it according to the current accreditation standards which say nothing about the core content mm-hmm. so we're pr- proposing to the minister's meeting, a strategy for making that clearer in the accreditation guidelines, which they may or may not agree with. I'm hoping they will agree with. And then what has to be submitted to the local regulator will follow those prescriptions. Um, Remembering, as always, it's not everything that's in the program. It's just things that you can't have a program without.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep, got it. One of the other things that I think has made this a little easier in the UK is the fact that there is one regulator, Ofsted, who regulates right across the nation and it doesn't kind of have this two-step process which we seem to have here, which is kind of the national body that then, you know, spreads out to state and territory regulators. Do you, do you think that that creates any additional challenge for us and are there any kind of strategies to overcome that kind of two-step process rather than one single regulator?
1: Uh, yes, it's a, it's a challenge. You know, but the federation is a beautiful thing and um, it leads to all these lovely naturally occurring experiments where one state does something smart and everyone else is been doing the same thing. So, you know, we get some benefits from federation, but there's some problems of the federation. You know, the legislative authority for registering teachers each exists in the states and territories, and that's that. And if we were to propose, and some people have encouraged us to propose, that there should be a national regulator, as there is in, for example, nursing and midwifery. but our our feeling is that you would spend five or six years, and goodness knows how many changes of government and ministers, are trying to get each state and territory to concede a state right to a national body. So some people might have the energy for that fight, but I don't. I'd rather something happen sooner. You know, I've got some grandsons who are just about, you know, just going to school, and I'd like them to um, be taught by teachers who know some core content, not sit on the sidelines and wait for the regulators to line up in a row.
0: Fair enough. And so, so I mean, if we were to make that change, is that what it would have to happen? Each state and territory would have to voluntarily concede?
1: That- no. Well, if we want to have a national regulator, you have to do that. So instead, we're proposing not that there be a national regulator, but there'd be a national system of oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got to be, so it's two steps. Mm-hmm.
0: I was just talking about the hypothetical of if if someone did want to fight that five-year battle, it couldn't be just an education minister who comes in and says, no, this is how we're doing it. They literally, they do have to have conversations and kind of convince every state and territory's respective education minister to
1: concede that. Correct. And so, I mean, I've been involved in the, the thing I've been calling the ATWD, the big data project since its inception. And that relies on collecting data from each of the registration regulatory authorities, and so I'm, I'm intensely aware of how much negotiation it's taken just to get every one of those authorities to send out a survey and send the results back to us. You know, so they, 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 each state and territory has got slightly different regulate; they regulate slightly different things. So, well, I think um, it took five years from the inception of that project or six before the last jurisdiction changed its act so that it could share data with us in western australia the act said you can't share the data so they couldn't share the data so they had to persuade the government of the day to eventually get it to the top of their legislative list so you know our situation in in australia is quite different from the uk they've got one regulator They've got a system that is very used to a, a, a quite intrusive inspectorial kind of regulatory structure. They don't just regulate the course of study. They, they go and inspect the programs. They look at students in schools. But we're, we're not going to have that kind of a system. You know, we've got a country which is, you know, what, about 10 times as large, not nearly so densely populated, with a federation, you know, so it's just a different... We have to do the best we can.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering because I was actually looking at the UK's kind of regulatory handbook this morning, right? And looking at what they do, and they kind of they're like, "This is how we will inspect you. We're gonna we're gonna come and we're gonna physically get you to show us your curriculum resources. We're gonna like visit the training and review it and kind of mark your training. And we're gonna be we're gonna be on site for four days to do." due diligence, due diligence around, around this work. I mean, here's another question. Is it actually possible to kind of regulate something with rigour without going to that that level of detail?
1: Hard to say. I think that level of detail is not possible for us. The visiting is not possible. I don't think we could secure the level of funding or the agreement from seven jurisdictions.
0: But some jurisdictions could choose to do it themselves, right? They could. Is there any appetite for that in any jurisdiction? Do you think
1: zero? Really? It's all done um, on a uh, sort of a desktop basis. Why is there zero appetite? Like, I, I,
0: I don't get it. I don't get it. Like you, earlier, you mentioned like Tassie; they've only got to regulate one provider. Was I correct in here? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm pretty sure they could find four days in a year to visit that one provider. Why? Why wouldn't there be any appetite to to move away from the desktop in that context? Would you say?
1: It's a mystery to me. It's the way things have been that people have always assumed that the universities know what they're doing and employers will accept whoever is registered. So we just haven't had the same tradition of digging in. And of course, the market for digging in, you know, could easily um, ebb, flow, (laughs) as teacher shortages get tougher.
0: Mm. Well, that's a challenge, right? We've got this additional pressure pushing like that's we've got teacher shortages so essentially that's an incentive to just like be a bit more laissez-faire and allow more teacher training institutions to open and just just let more let more people in you know lower the required ATAR to let people in lower the standards and it's kind of this it's a real challenge um in terms of the the pressures that are on the system at the moment
1: it's a real challenge that's why i think it would be good to amend the accreditation standards have some kind of national oversight body that ensures that there's comparability across the states. Focus on what people need to know how to do, not what they need to know how to write about. Focus on those things that we know from cognitive science and um, expert teachers really make a difference in mastering bodies of knowledge. That's where we, you know, that's the bit that we can do. Uh
0: huh. Yeah, we can provide the info. I mean, this these UK reformers that I was speaking to the other day, they were also saying it's intense because... Ofsted comes in, they do inspections, and they actually shut down IT providers who aren't working in line with these standards. Do you think that would happen at all? Like, is someone going to get a a submission on their desktop that doesn't quite look up to standard and the regulatory body is going to say, "Ah, sorry, guys, you know, it's not up to standard. You can't operate anymore. Is that ever going to happen? And without it happening, is there enough incentive for providers to actually make the change?
1: Well, I can tell you that hasn't happened that when regulatory authorities have been dissatisfied, they've been inclined to go back and say, do it again. And what we haven't had any tradition of in Australia is of people saying, for example, do it again, and you've got one year. till you get it right or we'll close you down? Or you've got three years. So we don't have a tradition. So that's one way of of dealing with it, of just saying, well, you've got a year, and these are the five things you'll have to do differently. Instead, what happens is the tradition has been to work with the provider to bring them up to the standard. So um, it would, you know, if we had a national regulatory authority, which we wanted, one of the things I would recommend a national authority did was give, you know, risk-based accreditation. If an institution has been going for 100 years and it's got 80% of its students get jobs, why would you regulate them at all? Hardly, you know. Well, you know, it would be light touch. If an institution is graduating, 30% of the people are enrols, and half of those are gone after five years, you'd have to say, let's look again.
0: But we don't have a
1: tradition of doing that and uh, the national regulator is not, is not on the cards. We've considered it but decided that it will be too hard a hurdle to get over and take too long. And in the meantime, we want some reform. So, Ollie, uh, you can uh, you can commit yourself to that one, but I, <laughs> I
0: haven't got time. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'll, I'll work on it. I mean, I guess the thing that worries me a little bit. I mean, you kind of allude to this in the the next steps report because within it you write some six years after the Tmag review, which you know suggested that we should have these um, teacher performance assessments. Some higher education providers still at that time, twenty twenty one did not have an endorsed teacher performance assessment in place, a critical element to ensure that graduates are classroom ready. So, uh, when I look at that, I say, here's one thing that we were trying to get these institutions to do. It's been six years and lots of them still aren't doing it. So, if that was one thing, give granted, it's it's quite a change to assessment practices to have, have this TPA. But if that's one thing and now we're trying to do a whole curriculum change,
1: how hopeful are you about that, Bill? Well, I can tell you that they all do now have approved TPAs finally. Um, so that's been done. Great. Right. How hopeful am I? I'm fairly hopeful, but there will need to be some kind of national oversight. And so uh, we, in, in the, the expert panel on the T review that followed the one you're talking about, we've got some recommendations for the ministers about how to manage that. Uh, but whether they agree or not, I can, you know, this is, uh, this is what ministers Ministers of
0: war. Do, you want, do you want to talk to some of those recommendations a little bit now?
1: Oh, well, it, well it's, 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 it's in the um, discussion paper. There's a suggestion that there should be some kind of national oversight board, which wouldn't have legislative authority, but it would be able to provide clearer guidelines to the regulatory authorities about what they do. So, for example, here's an example of this. Back to the TPAs. So every university now has got a TPA. There's about eight or ten different ones in the country. But there's no single national moderation process that determines whether the cutoff score, you know, the passing and failing standard is the same in every one of those TPAs. And that's because no one's got the authority to ask for that. So in our in our expert panel's recommendations to the ministers, there'll be some stuff around trying to get over that problem.
0: Okay. So giving this regulatory authority the the power to ask for details like that
1: from the regulatory authority giving this national oversight board the powers to work with regulators to do that that's a good phrase (laughs) i'm Um, being careful here
0: no you're doing well you're doing well and you know i mean it's tricky because i mean it's all all good and well for me i'm not on the board i can i can ask these tricky questions but I, i agree that you i mean i i acknowledge should i say that you're taking a pragmatic approach, right? You you're seeing seeing the scenario, seeing the challenges and trying to design some practical solutions, as you put it, that can, you know, materially move Aussie education forward. Then I, I think I think the the panel so far is doing a great job. All power to them. And I think maybe maybe we need some other kind of levers and other people to raise their voices a little bit more to kind of push the rigor even a little bit more. I'm not sure. People can email me with ideas. I'm open to them. Dear listeners, a quick pause in this episode to let you know some exciting news. On this important topic of teacher development, the teacher development that I'm most excited about at the moment is instructional coaching. And there is no guidance in the world on instructional coaching that I respect more than that of Josh Goodrich. Josh and I spoke about the theory of instructional coaching back in episode 74A. And Josh subsequently coached me on the podcast in episode 74B. If you haven't listened to this double bill as yet, I'm sure you're going to love it. And in relation to this, the particularly exciting news for Australian listeners is that, following the success of our March Instructional Coaching Intensive, with many attendees saying that it was the best PD that would ever been to, Josh is coming to Australia again to run a series of three instructional coaching intensives in partnership with yours truly. These intensives will be in Perth, Melbourne, and Sydney in early October. These instructional coaching intensives will cover in detail how to collect high-quality observational data, give targeted and effective praise as a starting point and a springboard for a productive coaching conversation, propose an action step to your coachee in a way that helps them to feel both inspired and motivated to take on the challenge, We'll cover modeling, supporting a coachee to effectively plan how to implement their action steps, and there'll be a big emphasis on running effective rehearsal with a coachee that really helps them start to build the habit of practice excellence. I'm really looking forward to each of the three intensive days. And for a couple of them, it won't just be Josh and I. Harry Fletcher Wood is also going to be able to join us, and Sam Sims will be joining us for a couple as well. To find out more and to book, go to Ollile.com forward slash coach. And if you're listening to this, but it's past October, it's still worth going to Ollile.com forward slash coach because any future instructional coaching events will also be shared at this link too. So for a world-class day of instructional coaching training with the best in the business, go to olilevel.com forward slash coach. Enjoy the rest of this episode with Bill Loudon. So, we've talk- we have talked about kind of getting the curriculum in place, but there are actually within your report and especially the, disc- the, the recent discussion paper, you suggest a number of metrics to kind of test in addition to kind of what we've been talking about, which is quite a narrow focus in terms of the quality of teacher education, which is around the curriculum. There's also a heap of things that we can look at that are indicators of quality teacher training as well and you, in the discussion paper you talk about four areas which are selection retention classroom readiness and transitions for employment so what data can we collect that's going to help us to see and then you know report on openly that's going to help us to see the kind of quality of teacher education that these providers
1: only until you've got some consensus about what quality is it's hard to measure quality so i'm hoping that we'll get assent to what we've said is the essential content that has to be in every program alongside with all the other things that are in programs. And so if we can get consent to agree that that is the essential stuff, there's a chance of of later trying to work out what proportion of students from which institutions can do the things we've asked them to do. But currently, there's no industry-wide consensus. Uh, There are schools of thought and there's plenty of room for people to do whatever they so some of those indicators can't be about quality. Many of them are to do with supply or efficiency. So we've got some indicators, and the indicators are things like proportion of students who complete the program within a reasonable number of years, yeah. year-on-year uh, progression yeah. through programs, proportion of people who complete programs who become registered teachers, proportion of people who become registered teachers who are still there after five years. So that that's to do... Um, not so much with quality, because as I say, we're struggling for consensus on quality. We're hoping to contribute to consensus on quality. But most of those things, that uh, those indicators have got a lot more to do with supply. But I, can, I, I just feel, listeners, you know, when I started the, the previous review with Lisa Paul, it was all about quality and preparing briefings for ministers in a fortnight. The issue they're most concerned about is supply. They're both important, of course, but, you know, I, I, I can feel around me what was anxiety about quality has turned into anxiety about supply. Of course, I'm interested in both.
0: Mm, yeah, that comes back to challenging position. Where... But
1: the absence of, you know, classes without teachers, I don't want that either. Yeah. A teacher is generally better than no teacher. A teacher is better than no teacher, although I, my aspirations for how good teachers are um, are boundless, Teacher is still a good thing.
0: Yeah. Bill, what advice, I mean, people are listening and they're kind of, if people are listening, they're keen to really drive education form, reform forward in Australia. What what advice would you have for them?
1: Well, if I think about it like that, I don't think there's anything more important than the quality of experience people have on crack So, you know, People who work in schools, who work in the school, know that it's not always the best teachers who want to take practice students. And it seems to me the best teachers have an obligation to produce some more fabulous teachers. And so whatever whatever we can do to to build a link between what's taught at the university and what's learned in school, anything that any of us can do to bridge that gap is important. So I think there's there's jobs for everyone there. There's jobs for teachers to take prac students and take them seriously. There's jobs for employers who I think should tip a bit more money into into prac, and not not necessarily into teachers' pockets around prac, although that would be a good thing if you could do it, but more into students' pockets around prac because almost all students are also workers, and often they're not 19. So there's jobs for employers to do if they want supply to increase. The best thing you can do is have better prac experiences so more people want to be teachers. So there's jobs for employers, there's jobs for teachers, and there's jobs for initial teacher education to make sure that although their resources are tight, they make sure that they don't just subcontract all the pracs we've visioned out to short-term contract staff who they whose names they hardly know. So, you know, for me, it's all about well, the quality of the school experience, getting... Beginners into really good classrooms with really good support, and I think there's a lot that can be done there. And, and I think the teacher the teacher supply crisis is actually going to help us move on this issue, because employers are now so concerned they're not going to have enough teachers that I think they're more interested in kind of getting agreement among the parties that it's everyone's problem, because this is the real problem of teacher ed. It's no one person's problem. You know, the Commonwealth government funds it. 40 universities run programs, 35 or 40 big school systems employ teachers. And so there's no one sort of centre, you know, and there's eight, seven or eight regulators. So there's no one centre of power here. But Teachers to Play is going to make us all worry a lot more about the quality of prac on the assumption that high-quality learning experiences will lead not only to better teachers but to more teachers, more people in today. That's the point that I think we can all, that all of your listeners, anyone who's interested in this podcast, will be able to see how they've got their own part of that problem.
0: Mm. That's great, Bill. I mean, that, that leads into another interesting question. One of the distinctions between Australia and the UK teacher education, as you alluded to earlier, is in Australia, pretty much all lives with universities. In the UK, there are a number of institutions that are not universities that, that train teachers. And in terms of continuity of experience from the teacher training institution to the prac maybe a way forward in australia could be having people doing teacher trainings within an actual education system i mean i don't know say there's some catholic education system that works with 50 100 schools whatever it might be is there anything stopping a system like that from saying actually we're just going to develop our own teacher training institute and make sure that we've got lots of continuity of messaging right throughout the system is there anything stopping that
1: uh, well, the regulatory environment, the definition of what a teacher is, stops you just giving the job to anybody, but there's no, there's no restriction on people's capacity to collaborate. So, for example, in very small school systems that serve uh, particular uh, faith communities, it's very easy to imagine how a relatively small number of students and a relatively small number of schools likely to be attractive to those students might all work together to create a completely seamless environment. So they got the Lutheran teacher they wanted. You know, I can see how that would work. It's a bit harder in a system that's got uh, 2,300 schools to get that to work. But I certainly think um, I, I can think of a few instances where particular employers have got together with particular universities to try and solve some of these problems in Canberra there's a strong established relationship between the University of Canberra, which is the only teacher ed provider in the ACT, and the, the ACT uh, Education Directorate that employs the larger number of teachers. So, you know, once again, the scale is a little bit smaller, but there, I think there are plenty of good experiments that have gone on there. But, you know, coming back to, could we do what we do in the, in the UK? No, we don't have the capacity for people to become a registered teacher by working in a school, a school-based only program, everyone's going to have to get some kind of degree because that's in the accreditation rules.
0: And to give someone a degree, like a Masters of Teaching, for example, there's a whole heap of other rings you've got to jump through to become a sort of institution. Well,
1: only universities give degrees. No, you know that's what a degree is. Okay,
0: yeah, right. It's a thing the
1: thing that universities give. So, <laughs> um, it's their only virtue, really. And at the end of the day, they give the degrees. Um, So you can imagine different systems, and the UK's uh, had uh, maybe 15 years of experiments in getting other providers who are non-university providers. So we haven't tried that here, taking the university out, but we've certainly tried in some places to get the relationship between the university and the employer or group of employers much tighter. And I think there's plenty of scope for that. Even in big school systems, you can imagine that, a district, a part of the of Western Sydney that is used to where the schools are used to working together, could easily work well with a local university to build those links.
0: Good plan. Bill, something else we we like to ask guests on the podcast is just kind of for some book recommendations. So this could be books related to education or kind of anything, just things you think that or things that have kind of influenced you along your journey and that you think uh, listeners might might enjoy as well.
1: I hadn't thought about what influenced me on my journey. But, you know, I'm a reader, and so whatever I'm reading, I, it ends up kind of, you know, inhabiting me. And it's got nothing to do with education, but I'm deeply in, there's a guy called Anthony Bieber, who's a, a historian, who's mostly interested in the history of Russia, and he's written this fantastic book about the Russian Revolution and the, and the Civil War that followed it. And so I'm kind of 500 pages into this. And what's remarkable to me is that, He's describing the course of the revolution and the civil war that followed in terms of the landscape. And I know the names of all the towns. Why? Because Russia and Ukraine are fighting over much of the same territory. So, you know, you turn on the TV at night and you hear about something's happening in Kherson. Well, there was a great battle there. And so it's just reminded me, uh, you know, your listeners are not interested in Russian history like I am, I'm sure, but everyone's interested in the way that... History throws very long shadows into the present and the future. And it couldn't be clearer here that we, we listen to what Putin is saying about Ukraine and can't understand it. But if you read this book, you'll understand why Russians and Ukrainians feel like they do, because that territory's been fought over and over and over. That's what I'm reading. I don't know whether that's any use to you, but the, the, long, you know, the long shadow of history is of great interest to me.
0: Well, I mean, well, well placed, Bill, to be in the position you're in to also draw, think about the long shallow shadows of 101 damn nations, and <laughs> uh, hopefully take some lessons from them into the the current the current environment. Bill Loudon, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your generosity of spirit, especially in, in face of some of my kind of ch- challenging and poking and prodding questions. Obviously, I wasn't poking and prodding at you. I was poking and prodding at the, the system that we find ourselves in. And I really admire uh, the way that you and the rest of the, the expert panels really taken a pragmatic approach and trying to make incremental improvements in Australian education. As I said, I'm super excited about the kind of framework that the teacher education curriculum, I think it's fantastic. And I really hope that it can get embedded in in lots of institutions. And with people like yourself working on these important issues, Bill, I do feel hopeful for the future. Uh, One of of my... um, favorite lines from today was, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more when you say, we need to get people moving away from long explanations about small bits of reality. Uh, I felt that was a great one. And we really need to focus more on getting people to actually do it. So Bill, thanks for your time today. And here's to more teachers actually doing it.
1: Thanks, Ollie. It's a pleasure.
0: Hi all, it's Ollie again with one more thing before you take off. And that one thing is Ed threads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My free weekly newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary for teaching and learning that you can get free access to. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show and that I've discovered from scaring the world of education. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe to get Ed Threads. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week, and until next time, keep learning.